And Father, now we turn our attention to your word. We thank you for this uh, this lofty book of Hebrews that there is so much in here and we've covered so much territory. We've been to the heavens and back uh, looking at Jesus and his greatness and his majesty and that he truly is greater than everything. There is nothing that compares to him. And Father, as we look at this very well-known passage of, of Hebrews 11, as we continue our journey uh, through the hall of faith, as we turn our eyes to Abraham, we ask that you would help us to learn from Abraham and Sarah's example. I pray, Father, that you would encourage us um, through their lives, we ask that you would help us to grow in our trust of you, that we would not just confess you as Lord, but that we would um, have the element of obedience that all of these characters in Hebrews 11 demonstrated, that faith uh, turns into faithfulness on their part. And so, Father, we long... Uh, to walk with you faithfully all the days of our lives. We recognize that we fall short so often. Uh, We are unable um, on our own. We thank you for the spirit that indwells us as followers of Christ. We ask that we would become sensitive to his leading, uh, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would uh, yield to his voice, and that we would honor you with our lives. Father, where we are struggling right now, we ask that you would, uh, as Scott put it, to clean up our mess. Uh, Help us, Lord, to get on track with you. Uh, We love you, Father. We thank you that you're a God of grace. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had been promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand, which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he went, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us now as we navigate this passage. We ask that you would uh, meet us where we are, help us uh, to see what the passage says and uh, what it means and how we can apply it to our lives this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. And it's in Christ's good name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so as a bit of a, a, a reminder, we're, we're hopping right into Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, we started last week. Um, and so when we're in the sort of the middle portion of the loaf of bread, we have to kind of remember what the bookends are about. And so we entered into Hebrews chapter 11, uh, really back in chapter 10. 
uh, we see uh, that the individuals uh, that the letter was being written to, that they were facing severe persecution, that there were people who were uh, being arrested for their faith. There were people who were had lost their lives as a, a public spectacle. Uh, we see that the individuals here had had seizure of their property for professing Christ as Savior. In verse 35 of chapter 10, the author writes, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great great reward. Now, the confidence goes back to verse 19. And the confidence is, he says, since you have confidence to enter in, uh, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is in the actual holiest of holies. And by his work on the cross, through his sacrifice, we have assurance to enter in. So he's saying, don't throw away your confidence. There's persecution, yes. There's uncertainty in this world. But don't throw away that confidence of the access that you have. He says in verse 36, the word that was key there is this endurance, which will pop up again at the end of Hebrews 11 and, and 12, 2 or 1 at the very end. But the message is that you would have endurance, that you would press on in your faith, that you would trust God with your life. And in verse 38, he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, which is this very famous uh, verse. Is done so, I mean, that God has used this verse to spark many things. Uh, Habakkuk 2.4 says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Paul quotes this in Romans. I think it's 116 or 17. It's the verse that Martin Luther, as he was uh, walking up the steps on his knees, doing sort of penance, meditating upon Romans, that verse struck him. And he said, it's by faith, it's not by works. And he stood up and the Reformation began. And uh, It's quoted again in Galatians. It's quoted here. This is the verse that uh, launches out. It seems that the New Testament writers, as they look upon the Old Testament, there are like sequoia trees coming out. And this is one of the sequoia trees that God's people have always been asked to live by faith. It's never been by works. Now, there are works that follow from faith, but faith is the earmark of the follower of God. And so he says in verse 39, as persecution comes, he says, we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but we are those who have faith, the persevering of the soul. And as he wants to encourage the reader to press on in their faith, he starts with a definition in verse 1. It's a, rough de- de- it's a rough definition. It's probably not exhaustive. But we're told he starts with, now faith is the assurance or substance. It's actually a legal term for a, 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 a deed, like a property deed or a pink slip of a car. That this isn't something that's just a feeling. Faith is this substance of things hoped for or expected the conviction of things not seen, that the things that are unseen are actually far greater than the things that we see. And so we come to God by faith uh, concerning the things that we can't see. And from there, he gives examples of those who have gone before us, who have gone before them, who lived by faith. And he starts with creation. Uh, We probably could, he says, but by faith we understand. And it's funny that this argument over the where did everything come from, that, that it's not a new argument. This has been going on for thousands of years. That every human is, is challenged by creation. The scriptures tell us that the, that the heavens declared the glory of God. So each of us, as we step out, whether you live today or you lived 6,000 years ago, where did all this stuff come from? And you can either come up with some answer that's not going to satisfy you, or you can say there is a God who's created this. And he says it's by faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. In verse 4, we're introduced to Abram, or not, excuse me, not Abraham, that's today. We're introduced to Abel, and we're told that by faith, Abel made this sacrifice. He heeded God's word, He faced great persecution in worshiping God as God explained to him to worship him. His brother took his life. The next person that we're introduced to is Enoch. 
Enoch lived leading up to the days of the flood. It was right in uh, Noah's generation. We know that um, society at large had gotten very evil. And all we're really told about Enoch is that he walked with God. He had, he had a handful of children. And it, it seems that in the midst of the perversity of that generation in which he sat, he remained faithful to God. And his walking with God and his influencing his family in this godly way was so pleasing to God that God just took him. And then we go to Noah, and we're told that Noah, by faith, reverently, fearfully honored God. God said, a rain's coming. Noah's like, hey, what's a rain? We've never had rain before. It's believed that before the flood that there was never rain, that there was a canopy that existed. He lived nowhere near the water, and God says, hey, I need you to build this huge boat. I need you to testify against this generation, and hopefully people will respond. And at the end of the day, as decades passed, only his Immediately, immediate family responded. They entered in the ark. And that generation was taken away. And we're told that Noah did this by faith. In verse 6, we are encouraged to live by faith. We're told that as we live by faith, it pleases God. It actually says in the negative that without faith, it's impossible to please God. But what we're told that is if we live our lives faithfully, trusting God, God is actually pleased. And he also tells us that as we live our lives faithfully, God will prepare blessings for us sometime in the future. That that there will be a reward for those who follow after God faithfully. And so today we come to the story of Abraham. My plan is to move quickly uh, through what we read here in Hebrews so that we can tie it all together with the Lord's Supper. And so we begin in verse 8, and we read the two words by faith. I mentioned last week that in Hebrews chapter 11, if you were to read Hebrews chapter 11 straight through, you'll notice a rhythm that just develops by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith. And if you want to count them, you're going to count them about 19 times, I believe. And those 19 occurrences, in of themselves, sort of proclaim the message of this chapter. It's by faith. By faith. Now, great works flow from these things, but it's faith is, uh, you know, the saying, don't put the cart in front of the horse. Putting works before faith is actually putting the cart before the horse, that it's By faith we live, and works flow from our faith. So we're introduced to Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. So the first thing we see is, uh, by faith, Abraham obeyed God. God said, you live in this place. I need you to leave your family, leave your location, and you go alone to this location. And after you get going, I'll fill in the blanks. I see the equivalent of God saying, hey guys, what I want you to do is I want you to just go down, just drive up to LAX this afternoon when you get there, uh, look at the terminal, see which the next airplane is going out overseas, hop on that plane, and when you land, I'll give you new directions. But you're moving to wherever that plane's going. (laughs) Oh, Okay. That's why my name's not in the Bible right now. That would be like a little bit crazy. You know, that's scary. Verse 9, he continues, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And so we're told that by faith, Abraham went, and when he arrived, he lived the nomadic life. He was this stranger in a land that wasn't his. He got to the promised land, sure, but there were other people there, and there was by no means was he the the, the top dog that had control over it. We're told that he and his sons and his grandsons were all uh, a nomadic people who by faith lived that way, trusting that God would fulfill the promise. Verse 11, we come to uh, Sarah. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, 
We're talking about Abraham, which is kind of funny here. And him as good as dead at the time. Basically, it's saying that she was old, but he was even older, and he was basically in his grave. And a child came through him. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So by faith, we're told, Sarah trusted God to deliver on his promise. And because she counted God faithful, God delivered this child. I want to skip over verses 13 to 16. I'm going to loop back to them. But these are sort of an explanation of uh, why he's speaking about these people of faith. But we're going to come down to verse 17 and continue on Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people, even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. And so by faith, we're told that Abraham was tested. The test was, now that you have Isaac, you've been waiting a lot of years. Finally, you've been given this son that every bit of the Abrahamic covenant, all of the promises come through the son. Now, what I want you to do is to go sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. And we're told that, uh, you know, Isaac is old enough to carry his weight, so he carries up the stuff he's going to be sacrificed with. They go up there. Abraham gets to the point where this, God says, well, time out. Hey, look at that. There's a ram caught in the bushes. Go, go ahead and use that. But what the author of Hebrews tells us is that at this point, even though all of the promises rested on Isaac, at this point in his life, he believed that even if he took his son's life, God was able to raise his son from the dead. And we're told that he received him back as a type, which I'm going to address that a little bit later. Now back up to Hebrews 11.13, the part I skipped over. So here we read, all these, I think that we could include everybody that's been uh, mentioned up to this point, those who believe that God spoke the creation into existence. I believe that we could say that Abel, by making a sacrifice, is included here. We can say that Enoch was included here. Uh, maybe not Enoch, because he never died. Uh, then we have Noah. He says, all these died in faith, without receiving the promises, that they lived their whole lives, they lived in a way that their faith resulted in obedience. So faith moved from uh, an understanding or a confession of something to a life of obedience. So it's, it merges into the word what I would call faithfulness. All of them lived faithfully and all none of them saw the promises that they were given. All of these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they recognized that this world that they lived in, they were not of this world. And so they were here. God had a purpose for them, but that ultimately they were strangers and exiles in their homeland, wherever that was. And I would say that applies to us as well. Verse 14, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. What he's saying is they heard the promise, they saw what God had said, they took it by faith, and if they decided that they didn't want to live by faith, at any time they could have turned around and gone back to where they came from. But none of them turned back. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. And that's a beautiful, just a beautiful, encouraging line about God, that God was not ashamed of them. He was not ashamed to be called their God, for he prepared a city for them. In verse 13, I, I want to point something out to you. I don't know if any of you noticed, but I told you, by faith, by faith, by faith. By faith. That phrase, I think it's 19 times in Hebrews 11. Uh, faith is used a number of times. I, I don't have it in my notes, but I think it's like 24 times in Hebrews 11. But if you'll notice in verse 13, a different word is used. It doesn't say by faith, it says in faith, which changes everything. All of these died in faith. 
And I think in that, in they died in faith, it sort of flips the story around. I read the story of Abraham just straight up in Hebrews, and I, it really actually kind of discourages me right off the, if we take it at face value. I've already, I've already confessed to you that God told me to go to LAX with all, like, pack up your bag with everything that you want to live with for the rest of your life, take your family, go to the airport and just hop on the next flight out, and then I go down there, I say, next flight out, next flight out, next flight out, no, no, oh, rats, it's Istanbul, okay. <laughs> I would struggle with that. I see Sarah, like all of, all of this stuff, it's like, I don't have this kind of faith. I can't do this. Hebrews paints this really pretty picture, but I think the key is in faith. They died in faith. It's how they ended. It's not how they started. A few weeks ago, I think it was in Hebrews 4, 5, or 6. I forget which one. I should have written it down. But Abraham already came up once. And I had us look back at his life. And I want to do that again today. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, I want to look at the Abrahamic covenant. And if you ever find yourself in Bible college and you're being introduced to to uh, the Abrahamic covenant. I'll never forget, I was in Bahrain actually doing Bible college uh, while deployed. And it was the first time I was ever exposed to this term, the Abrahamic covenant. And so as I started researching the Abrahamic covenant, I'm like, where in the world, which one is it? I see one in chapter 12. I see one in chapter 15. I see it again in chapter 17. Which Abrahamic covenant are we talking about? And at the time, I don't think I pressed the issue too much because I just wanted to finish the class and get a grade. Um, but I believe that the Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis chapter 12, these first three verses. Abraham, at the time called Abram, was called out by God and given some promises. Verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew. So right here we have a problem because God said to leave your family. Now, as last time I checked, a nephew is your family. A wife was allowed. His household was allowed. But I don't think that Lot was a part of the deal that God was talking about. And as the situation unfolds, uh, they all go out. Both of their households um, multiply, grow, and it ultimately leads to some problems. Uh, by the time we get to verse 8 of chapter 13, they, their, their workers were sort of squabbling over, like, who gets the water, who gets the food, our animals. And so Abram takes his nephew up to this mountain, and he says, look at the horizon lot. Just look at everything. we got to go two separate ways. And you look, if you want to go to the left, I'm going to go to the right. And if you say you want to go to the right, I'm going to go to the left. You, you, you get the choice. And then I will basically make my decision on yours, and I'll go the exact opposite way. There'll be no problems. We have to divide. And so they go through this process. Immediately after they separated, look at verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look. From the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through, the, through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre. Now, uh, God is silent leading up to this point. Now they separate ways. God comes back and reaffirms this covenant that he has made with him, that he will do these things. Um, 
it, it'll it'll I want to skip forward a little bit. You don't have to follow me there, but you can. In 15, verse 3, we get insight about Lot. And so in verse 3, I'm fast-forwarding. I'm going to have to kind of circle back around. We see this. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who comes... uh, Oh, did I go to... Okay, verse 2, excuse me. So verse 2, Abraham said, O Lord, O God... What will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? So now we're going back to 13 where I wrapped up. So we see that the reason that, that Abram brought Lot along with him, during that time, if you had a bunch of wealth and you moved to another country, you moved away and you died. It's not like an attorney was going to track down your family and say, hey, Joe died and now you get all of his stuff. The way it worked is if you died and you had no heirs in the house, it went to the most sort of senior person in your home. And Abraham says, Lord, how's this going to happen? Like, now that Lot's not with me, I don't have a family member here. I only have this guy, Eleazar, who was born in my house. He's going to be the one who gets all the stuff, and he's from Damascus. And so we see sort of when God told Abraham to go, his faith was partial, but he also, he wanted to bring God some backup, so he brings his nephew along to help God out. Like, okay, so... This is how it's got to be. This is my nephew's here. And as soon as they part, God speaks again, reaffirms him. Then we come down to chapter 15, verse 1, and we read after these things as a reminder what are after these things. Uh, Chapter 14, Lot and Abraham have separated their ways. Uh, Word gets out that a number of kings of nations, but we in modern days we should think more of like, what we would think of like mayors of cities. They weren't like huge countries, but a a, a world war of of sorts breaks out. And in the midst of the skirmish, Lot the nephew is taken into captivity. And Abraham finally gets word of this. And, And up to this point, he hasn't gotten involved in the skirmish. But when he finds out about his nephew, he, of course gets a a band of guys together and he goes to combat and he frees his brother. They go their separate ways. We have the story of Melchizedek at the very end of 14. And then we read it. So 15, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, "Oh, oh Lord, What will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And Abraham said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body and he shall be your heir. So now we have new information before God just said what will happen, what he'll do, that Abraham's going to be, he's going to have this great nation under him, that that all of these uh, offspring will come through him. But he didn't say the how or the when it would happen. So Abraham resorted to taking Lot along. Now, Lot is gone. He freed Lot. He came back. And the the Abrahamic covenant, it's not so much ratified, but more information is given. And in this, God says, I'm going to do all of this stuff, as I told you. And this heir is actually going to come through your DNA. This will be your son. And then he takes him outside. He says, go get me all of these animals. And Abraham's getting all these animals. And I think he's getting terrified because he understands what the deal is. They're about to sign a covenant. They're, they're, it's a blood covenant. That What they would do is they would take all of the animals. They'd split them from head to toe. They would lay them on, on one on each side of a mountain. The blood would drain into the, the, the base of the mountain. And this is just how they made covenants. The two individuals would walk back and forth from the, in the blood and it was basically saying that, like, if I don't fulfill my side of the covenant, this will be me. You kill me. And if you don't fill your side, then you're going to die like one of these animals. And so Abraham's freaking out because he knows what's coming. And he knows that he can't fulfill this kind of contract with God. And so we're told in verse 12 that what God did is he basically knocked him out, passed him out on the side. He goes to sleep. He's out cold. Everything's set up. And then we're told that God alone walks through this covenant. And the significance of this is it tells us the Abrahamic covenant is not contingent on Abraham doing anything. 
because he is not capable as we are not capable. It was 100% contingent on God and his word and what he said, and God would fulfill both sides of this covenant, which now has new information. God's going to do all this stuff, and a child's going to come through Abraham. So then we come to chapter 16. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. Now it's really easy to sort of jump on her and say, What are you doing, Sarah? You don't live by faith. But see, with the new information they had, I could see her going, Oh, God said that the child was going to come through you. He didn't say anything about me. I've got this Egyptian maid. You conceive with her, and then a child will come, and then we'll help God out again. And so we go all the way down to verse 15. So say Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abraham is now 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. So we know he's 86 years old when this covenant in chapter 12 first happened. He was 75 years old. So we've moved the story along 13 years. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 17. Now, when Abraham was 99 years, I'm sorry, did my math get off there? 86, that's 11, public school, that's my big joke. I a long time ago speaking. So we have 11, uh, 11 years has elapsed. Now, 13 years from that. So now we have 24 years has elapsed from chapter 12 to chapter 17. Now, chapter 17, 24 years later, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, he's going to reiterate the Abrahamic covenant yet again. I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face And God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I will make you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be Uh, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And it continues, and they talk about circumcision and this new covenant of circumcision to, to separate them from the population. And then we come down to verse 15. And we're going to get new information about the Abrahamic covenant. Right now, all we have is that God's going to do something in chapter 12. Then in chapter 15, new information is given that the child will come through Abraham. Now in chapter 17, additional information is going to come in verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, as far as Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and indeed, I will give you a son by her. So now God has said, I'm going to do this. It's going to come through you. It's going to come through your wife. Verse 17, then Abram fell on his face and did what? Laughed. And said in his heart, will be, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abram said to God, God, I already took care of it. We got Ishmael. Let him just be the promise. Like, it's easier. You told us we did. Our way is a little bit easier. It's taken care of. But God said no. Verse 19. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and his descendants before him. And if we fast forward to chapter or chapter 18, verse 12, we see that Sarah laughed also. Abraham laughs. Sarah laughs. God says, I'm going to do something. They fall on their face, and they go, you're ridiculous. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm an old man. She's an old woman. They both laugh. He says, you're going to name that child laughter to remind you of what you did in my face. 
Now the story progresses. We get all the way to chapter 22. Many years has passed. Verse 22, now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said, here I am. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah. This is uh, the Mount Moriah is where the Dome of the Rock resides today. So when you see pictures of Israel, you see the Dome of the Rock. That's the location we're talking about. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain on which I will tell you. And so the story goes, they go. Uh, by the language about Isaac, he's big enough to carry the supplies. So the word for child, don't think child, think teenager to adult. The word could be used for somebody that's between 15 years old and 30 years old. Isaac was old enough to know what was going on. And so they go. I, Abraham goes all the way through the motion of actually sacrificing his son. And then God stops him at the last minute. We don't exactly know because of that usage of the word. We don't know how much time has elapsed, but we know that 25 years from the first promise in uh, Genesis 12 to the promise of Isaac, 25 years elapses. And now from that point to the time of sacrifice, an additional 15 to 30 years has elapsed. Most conservative scholars at a conservative on the, the, the lower end of the spectrum would say that from Genesis 12, when God made the promise of the Abrahamic covenant till Abraham was lifting the knife over his son's head to take his life, 45 years has elapsed. And this is the beauty of the story. If you'll turn with me back to Hebrews. So we read this whole story about Hebrews. And I read all this stuff by faith, by faith, by faith, by I mean. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of her life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. I remember her laughing in God's face. But remember, verse 13. It doesn't say all of these started in faith. It doesn't say all of these exercised perfect faith. What we see is an imperfect faith and a perfect God. And it says they died in faith. Which gives me goosebumps. Because the hero of the story is a faithful God who is so patient and gentle and long-suffering with us. When we look at Abraham, it's not that they were perfect. Far from it. What we see is this God who worked for many years in Abraham's life, 45 years of many significant shortfalls. And over the course of time, Abraham and his faith grew and developed. So that by the end of his life, when he was there asking to sacrifice his son, God had so done a work in his life that at that moment, his faith had matured and grown. That we're told here, in verse 19, that if he actually, I, I don't even, if it was, I, like I'm mentioning stabbing, I don't know if it was a slice, and I don't know how he was planning on actually taking, probably across the throat like an animal to bleed him out, that as he's literally with the blade of the knife on his son's throat about to take his son's life, his heart and his moment, we're told, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. He knew that everything that God had promised, everything rested on Isaac. But he didn't question. God told me this time, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I remember his name, Isaac, reminds me. Every time I say Isaac, it reminds me that I fell on my face and I laughed at God. God says this, I'm going to do this as hard as this is. And as he's about to do it, there's a ram. God says, time out. You are faithful. And we're told that he recognized that even if he killed his son, God's word would raise his son from the dead. And then there's this last phrase, which he also received him back as a type. Now, a type is a shadow, a, a, a picture of something in the future. And so we learn from the New Testament that Isaac actually became a type. And the anti-type is Jesus on the cross. That the father sent his son to die for us on the cross. Isaac was just a small picture of something that would come. And the father sends his son, and he didn't stop. He went all the way through and let those men execute Jesus because of my sin, because of your sin. 
And the whole work of Hebrews, this whole book is telling us that that sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. So stop trying to add to it. Stop, stop trying to make your own sacrifice. Stop trying to do good deeds to fill the gap where God fell short. God did it all. His work on the cross through Jesus was totally and completely sufficient. You can't add anything to it. And so he says, don't lose your confidence. Don't throw it away. He, by faith, has given you access to the holiest of holies through the work of Jesus. And the picture of this is that we serve just an awesome God. He says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. They did plenty of stuff that God should be ashamed of them. God tells them, I want you to do this, or I'm going to do this, and they laugh at him. God says, go do this. Don't bring anybody along. He brings Lot. God says, oh, Abraham, I'm going to give the son through you. Okay, God, I got it. Hey, uh, hey don't worry about you, sir. Let's, let's bring that maid in. We'll take care of business, and we'll, we'll get the job done. Then when God says, no, Abraham, it's, we still going through this? Okay, let me be really clear. You have a wife. And when I say that I'm going to make an error, she, the child is going to come through your wife. And he responds in laughter. But what he see is this patient, long-suffering God that I'm not going to give up on him. I'm going to, as Philippians, as Paul writes, that... God is not a God of unfinished business and he's going to continue the work in which he started. And so he finishes his work because the, the Abrahamic covenant was not conditional on Abraham. It was conditional totally on God. But as God's doing his work, he's working in, I, in Abraham's life. So but by the end, he was, he'd learned and he died in faith. And so where I want to turn, if you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, as we are looking at Hebrews, or we're getting ready for the Lord's Supper, at the very end of Philippians, there's an interesting passage. We very much are sojourners. If you are following after Christ, if you have by faith trusted in the work of the cross, we're told that you, at that moment, were issued a new passport. And so in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, we read, For our citizenship, our citizenship is in heaven. You might have an American passport, but really your citizenship, your passport, is in heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So the first thing I want us to know that if you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, by faith we recognize that we have these new passports. In this section, it's by faith that we look forward to these promises that he says he'll do. It's by faith we're to stand firm in the Lord. I don't know all the details of how the ends come in. Like, I have, like, my beliefs and convictions, but at the end, it's not up to me, like, how I die or if the Lord comes back before I die. I don't know how that's all going to work. But by faith, I trust what God has said, and by faith, I trust that he's going to do it. By, by faith, I trust that I have entry into heaven. Not based on my own works. The, the word is very clear that there's nothing I bring to the table. Isaiah says that, that my works are but filthy rags. And don't think oil. The, the word is menstrual cloth. It, it, it's We bring nothing to the table. But we're told that Jesus, when he died on the cross, he stood in our place and was our substitute and that when the nails were hammered into his wrist and his ankles, it was because of our sin. And that the wrath of God was placed upon him and that he fully absorbed the wrath of God. 
And if you've trusted in him, you suddenly get credited with his righteousness. It's called being the imputation of righteousness. That positionally you are righteous. How do you know? Well, by faith, because God said it. That's all I got. That's all I have. And so when I'm beating myself up for my past sins, when I'm beating myself up for how I think and the flesh within me, all I have is to go back to the word and say, you know what? I believe that God said it and therefore it's true. And there's evidence. And so when we take communion today, we're going to, we're going to pass out the elements, but we're going to hold, we're going to hold a broken cat, a cracker that's, it's a symbol of what happened to Jesus on the cross. We're going to hold a little juice that's symbolic of the new covenant that that we're not under the old covenant. We have this better covenant. We have access. It's a time for us to confess our sins. It's a time for us to reflect on what he did for us, to, to ground us in the basics of Christianity. And the basics of Christianity is that you are a sinner. And when I say you're a sinner, you are horrible. I'm horrible. All, we are Ephesians says that you are darkness. And the, the more we understand the holiness of God, the, the darker our, our character and who we are becomes. And we're reminded that Jesus died for us and that in his death, burial, and resurrection, through our faith in his grace, we're, we're born again. So the gospel grounds us to the, the, the building blocks of the faith. It's not about us, it's about him. It's not about our works, it's about his grace. So I'm going to pray. The guys are going to come forward. Actually, the guys are going to come forward, whoever is lined up to come forward. We're going to pass out the elements. Um, just hold the elements, and then I'll pray, and then we can take the elements. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper together, um, after looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah and Hebrews, they are presented to us as individuals that we are to look to, individuals um, who lived by faith, who did wonderful things by faith, We thank you for their example to us. And Lord, I confess that it would be very easy to look at them and their perfection and and to see how I don't measure up. But as we look at the story in full, we see that they were not perfect, that they had an imperfect faith, an immature faith at times. And God, I thank you that the Bible records people um, genuinely. I thank you that Abraham and Sarah's life and their shortcomings and failures to hear your word is, is documented for us. And Lord, I'm encouraged that as we read in, Hero, in, in Hebrews 11, that none of that... Uh, the negative stuff, the, the the imperfection of their faith, none of that is documented. And you simply show us that they died in faith, that they finished well. And so as we take communion today, as we hold this broken cracker, uh, reminding us of Jesus' broken body, as we hold this juice that's symbolic of uh, his blood on the cross, which uh, the inauguration of the new covenant, we thank you that there's no more sacrifice to be made on our behalf. That his death was once and for all that we read throughout Hebrews, once and for all, once and for all. It's so easy for us to drift away from that Lord, help us to understand uh, how bad our sin is.
how separated we are from you apart from Christ. We thank you for the encouraging words in the scripture that tell us that there's a better grace, there's a better hope, there's a better way. Lord, help us to stay on track with you. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ. Help us to ditch the sin that so easily entangles us and help us to run our race with endurance. Father, we thank you for our church family, that this is the place of love and uh, Christ-centeredness. Lord, I ask that you would help each of us, Lord, to be an encouragement to one another, that we would uh, do as Hebrews tells us, that we would uh, stir one another up, that we would provoke one another to good deeds, to good works, Help us to be a community where we truly link arms in life through the ups and downs, the good, the bad, and the ugly, that we would um, work with one another, Lord, for the sake of the gospel. We pray for our community. We pray for our neighbors who don't know you. Father, you've called each one of us to, to share, to proclaim the good news we're told in 1 Corinthians that as often as we take communion, we are to proclaim your death. And so, Lord, we don't take that commission lightly. We are fearful at times. We're nervous at times. But, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be the ambassadors that you've called us to. Father, we thank you that Christ paid it all. Help us to live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you. We are grateful, Lord, for your grace. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for your patience with us. We give you all the thanks. We praise you, Father. And it's in Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.